One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hi, Jonathan Goldsby here. It's crowdfunding month, and I can't believe that CanadaLand just released a limited series about a musical, and I had virtually nothing to do with it. Well, the series isn't about a musical, exactly, just the first episode, and even then it's not really about that. But it is, in a way, some of my favorite kind of journalism. In the initial installment of The Newfoundlander, the musical Come From Away sends journalist Justin Brake into a sort of identity crisis. And not just because he'd spent his life working on his own great Canadian musical about Gander Newfoundland and the hospitality it showed thousands of stranded airline passengers on 9-11, and now there's no longer a market for his creation, which was tentatively titled What's Good for the Goose. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Justin Brake, as far as I know, has never harbored ambitions in the realm of musical theater. But Come From Away did leave him disoriented due to a 45-second passage that comes near the hour mark in which the musical, which was largely based on original research and interviews by the creators, appear to reveal a secret from Justin's own family's past. And so on the Newfoundlander, he goes in search of the truth about his family and about how this particular story wound up in a show that's been seen by more people than any piece of theater written by a Canadian ever, maybe? Like, I guess unless you count Cirque du Soleil's theater or, or come to think what hair was co-written by a Canadian. I guess that's now had like over a half century's worth of productions. But yeah, Come From Away was big. And this very little part of it was very big for Justin. And that's just the first episode of The Newfoundlander, which continues to go in surprising directions after that. You'll never guess how the Anne of Green Gables musical fucked him up. That, that part's also a joke. If you subscribe to Candleland, you get access to the remaining parts right away. So sign up at candleland.com slash join to hear all of The Newfoundlander. 
Kim Wheeler, producer of Canada Landback, writer and producer on last year's Buffy St. Marie Starworker concert special, and host of The Kim Wheeler Show on Sirius XM's The Indigiverse. Thanks for joining me from Winnipeg. Hey, thanks for asking me. Today on the show, the most seismic and divisive expose in a alleged pretendian maybe ever? Certainly in the last decade, at least. And an update on Doug Ford's Greenbelt scandal. And would it be better or worse if Ontario had Manitoba's politics instead? Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Lauren Ehrenberg, Jason Redfern, Luis Grummet, Colin Betts, Megan Benedictson, Aidan Schatt, Sarah Bowden. And because it's crowdfunding season, we asked some people if they think that Canada is on balance, better or worse off because of Candleland. Here's how Jesse Wente responded. Annie Bojo, uh, this is Jesse Wente, uh, writer, broadcaster, uh, chair of the Canada Council for the Arts. I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter. I'm a big believer that we need independent media. Uh, maybe that's because as uh, someone who's First Nations, our views have rarely been represented in uh, media. And so I'm a big believer in independent media in general, media that exists outside of the the mainstream or the legacy media uh, in Canada, particularly media that can maybe approach some of the issues in this country uh, with a slightly different lens or point of view that can maybe see through the colonial bullshit, cut through it a little bit quicker than others can. And, well, I'm not sure Jesse himself necessarily does that. I do think that the uh, outlet has, uh, has done that. Uh, and as well, I think some of the reporting Jesse and his team have done on a variety of stories have been actually incredibly important uh, and have shown just the value of media. I think Canada is better because of Canada land. Um, not, not Don't get jump too high there, Jesse. It's, I, I'm, you probably know I think that's a pretty low bar to jump over. But I do think Canada is better off with Canada land. Just to note that this episode's first segment contains a discussion of alleged sexual assault against a minor. On this edition of The Fifth Estate, a Canadian icon whose true identity is in doubt. I don't understand how in the face of all of those details, you continue to tell a story that has no basis in reality. I want to update you on some questions that are going to be raised in the media about my truth and my ancestry, and I want to ensure you hear it from me first. These questions hurt me. They still do, but they also hurt others. They're questions I've struggled with my whole life. So what can I say? I know who I am. I know who I love and who loves me. And I know who claims me. And to those who question my truth, I say with love, I know who I am. As of recording, there have been 186 edits to the Buffy St. Mary Wikipedia page since the start of this year. But nearly two-thirds of those have come since last Friday, when the CBC's The Fifth Estate aired an episode and published an accompanying article rewriting, or at least raising questions about, much of what we thought we knew about one of the most prominent Indigenous individuals this land has ever produced, including whether, in fact, this land indeed produced her. Here's Canadian legend. Buffy St. Marie. The investigation consisted of two main components. One was a review of dozens of published accounts of her identity and origins, 
across a 62-year span, from a 1961 report in the Springfield Republican to a September 2023 guest appearance on the Jan Arden podcast, which, taken together, offered shifting and sometimes quite contradictory narratives of her background, in some cases within a short period. That alone would raise my eyebrow, but I accept that, like, you know, like with like Bob Dylan, for example, there are multiple feature-length films celebrating his mutable identity and ultimate unknowability. So, so we set that aside. But the other bigger part was the CBC's examination of records. We spent months hunting for documents, trying to uncover the truth. Of a Stoneham, Massachusetts birth certificate issued in 1941, of a life insurance policy from 1945, a U.S. census from 1950, her brother's statement of his personal history upon his military enrollment in 1956, her own marriage certificate from 1982, and several letters her brother wrote in the 70s to newspapers and family members as well as a legal threat seemingly issued to him on her behalf. There were also interviews with St. Mary's niece, cousin, and sister, all of which together suggested that the white Italian-American family she had often described herself as being adopted into was, in fact, her biological family. St. Mary did not give an interview to the CBC for the story, though she did respond with a gently threatening lawyer's letter in September, and then the day before publication, after rumors of the impending story had reached a fever pitch, released her own statement to both written and video forums, pointing out, among other things, that as a young adult, she was adopted by individual members of the Piapot First Nation in accordance with Cree law and customs. I also found a new family, a chosen family. And they took me in as an adult in accordance with Cree law and traditions, and they claimed me as their own. And I do have to say that on the whole, I found the CBC's reporting on balance to be more convincing than not. But I understand that you see it a bit differently, Kim. Yeah, I saw a bunch of holes in that story. You know, you talk about the birth certificate, the marriage certificate, the brother, the family. And as a 60s Scoop adoptee myself, I can tell you that I have two birth certificates. I have the birth certificate that came from when I was adopted that names my white parents. And I have a, a second birth certificate that I didn't find until last year. And by find, I mean, I went to the, I can't remember if it was through the post-adoption agency. It was some agency, some government organization here in Manitoba, where I had to apply to get my birth records. So then I have that second live birth or birth certificate with my birth mother's name on it. And so when they say, oh, well, she signed her marriage certificate, Mm. it's like, well, what was she supposed to do, right? I mean, she had to have said she had a birthday at some point. My date of birth is February 7th. But when I met my birth family, my sisters thought my birth date was February 10th. And that's what they lived with all their lives. The other thing that the CBC, the Fifth Estate, didn't mention when they talked about her family was Mm -hmm. that this was an estranged family. This was a family that she had no contact with, that she met that cousin one time when he was a small child. And I don't know if she's actually ever met the niece. So those little words that are missing are really important when it comes to a story of this importance. Because it it will sway the audience one way or the other. It's like, oh, well, her family is saying this. Well, actually, it's her estranged family, and and I, you know, I would hope that the that the viewing public is smart enough to pick up on on all of those. In this instant, I don't think they were, because it's such an emotional 
it's such an emotional story. I mean, it is interesting, especially for a TV piece, the extent to which it relied on documentary evidence. I mean, obviously, we can we can and should debate, you know, the merits of each of those pieces. But I think perhaps because of this absence, they did put an emphasis on that. I did like I went through the the written piece and which has a little bit more, I mean, a little bit more in the way of just mentioning specific articles and things than the, than the TV piece does. Uh, and I'm just curious exactly, like, who did they interview and who did they not? And who did they specifically also, who did they say they tried to reach out to and didn't respond? And there was less of that than I expected. So the, the people who with whom they did interviews, as indicated in the article, are two academics, Kim Tolbert and Jean Tay. They're three family members, Heidi St. Marie, the niece, Lainey, her sister, Bruce Santamaria, her cousin, who you mentioned having met him her once, two uh, American researchers slash activists, Jacqueline Keeler and Doug Buchholz, and Maria Sagarino, the town clerk in Stoneham, Massachusetts, who, quite surprising for people in, for us in Canada who are used to trying to, you know, squeeze any kind of statement out of public officials about anything, was very forthright and assertive in, you know, from a TV, TV perspective, very good sound bites and very good quotes about how confident she was in the validity of, of the records. Yeah, so is it, am I understanding this right? Her name is Buffy St. Marie now? Yeah, right. And she's a folk singer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she yeah. says she was born in Canada? Yeah. And that these people adopted her? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, not true. <laughs> yeah. I can say absolutely with 100% certainty that this is the original birth certificate. Beverly Jean Santa Maria was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts at New England Sanitarium and Hospital on February 20th, 1941. She was not born in Canada. And if anybody is saying otherwise, then they're misinformed. And there are about 40, I think 30 or something, 40 different articles mentioned and then the you know the whole bunch of documentary evidence, right? Well, when we talk articles, though, right? When we talk articles like the media stories, we know how wrong the media gets stories, even to this yeah. present day. How wrong the media can get little facts that can you know change over time and change somebody's identity. One of the things I found interesting was certainly the the lead up to the the piece actually being published, where you know word got out. You know, CBC had on. The TV schedule, the episode called Making an Icon, talking, they're going to look into the claims of indigenous identity of a particular high profile person, not specified whom. Word got out pretty quickly that it was Buffy St. Marie, and there was a lot of maybe initial reaction before it was published. When did you first hear that CBC was working on something? Um, I first heard of it last May. And actually, okay. actually, it was Drew Hayden Taylor who brought it to my attention because he had been approached by Jacqueline Keeler, who is in the documentary, mm -hmm. who was looking for somebody who would report on this story in Canada. And because mm -hmm. Drew did the documentary, The Pretendians, she thought he would be a good person, but he declined. And so he had copies of the birth certificate and the and a couple of the photos. So he had shown me them. And... Rightly or wrongly, I didn't say anything really to anybody outside of my my immediate circle about it because I honestly thought that they would go down this rabbit hole and not find anything substantial. Well, I guess I was wrong, <laughs> and that's okay. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's up to each of us to believe what we're going to believe. Setting aside, I guess, your 
conclusions on the merits of the findings, do you believe it was a worthwhile story for them to do in the first place? Yeah. As a journalist, I always think that if you're presented with something that sheds doubt on someone, and mm-hmm. especially in this age where we are pretending and hunting, that it is worth looking into. Knowing what they found and how they presented it, I wouldn't have presented it that way. I would have presented a more balanced, nuanced approach. You know, you mentioned off the top about Cree law and speaking to the Piapot family. Like, unless you get the Piapot family on camera, and unless you get a Cree knowledge keeper and you discuss Cree law, and and instead of just taking the word of the clerk at the birth records registry in Massachusetts, why didn't they speak to a historian? I mean, this story is, well, you know, while I know there are really important pressing issues in in the world right now, this story is of national importance, and it has torn the Indigenous community apart. There are people who are losing friends. There are people who are on both sides of the fence. Natanis Piapot, who is on the Piapot family statement, has received threats. And I just think, you know, we should be able to move through this with grace and kindness and understanding and not be laterally violent towards one another. What do you think has informed the different ways that people have reacted? I mean, obviously, some many people are still have sort of this maybe a cautious approach of still living the ambiguity of not knowing. But as you, as you noted, many people have feel very strongly one way or the other. Have you found any sort of common determining factors of where someone tends to fall? No, I don't think so. But I do know that, and unfortunately as it is, that we are really happy to tear people down very quickly. You know, not just as a society, but as Indigenous people as well. Back in the 90s, we called it crabs in the bucket syndrome. As one reaches the top, the others are there to whip them, you know, pull them back down. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why we are so quick to jump on people and to, you know, say all of these things that, oh, I always wondered why she had, you know, a weird skin tone or she probably dyes her hair black. I'm like, well, where were you guys before? Like, why weren't you saying this? Previously, when the Carry It On documentary came out, when the Star Walker show came out, like I didn't hear any of those negative comments. Everybody was like, oh, Buffy, Buffy, Buffy. And now there's there's question around her identity and they're all like, I always knew it. One of the points that the state makes is that there hadn't been more discussion around it, certainly from the people who, from her family, the people who knew her since childhood, was because she had actively worked to suppress it. In the documentary, they show a a lawyer's letter, a 1975 letter from Abraham Summer of Mitchell, Silberberg, and Krupp uh, addressed to her now late brother, basically warning him that she will sue if he continues doing things that would interfere with her employment prospects. And this apparently came shortly after he had a chance encounter with a potential employer of hers on Sesame Street, where she was eventually hired and was a cast member for several years, and who had later called him up to confirm some, just to confirm, like, is she indigenous or not? And he said, no, no, she's white, like like me. 
And so there was this, you know, this 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 threatening letter that amazingly uh, her brother and then his his daughter had apparently kept in the original envelope, along with the handwritten another handwritten letter from her, seemingly from her. The CBC actually did a handwriting analysis to see if it was from her uh, in the same envelope, threatening to dredge up other things, other accusations, uh, should he continue. Right, and that and that per letters he then sent to his parents. Uh, he said, like, you know, screw it. It's just it's it's not worth it. So that's the that's an explanation it offers. But you and to me, that also is one of the things that makes me question it in terms of responding, sort of going to legal threats. But I guess what did you make of that part? Well, you know, what she said was that she would move forward with the and make it, I guess, public knowledge that he had sexually abused her when she was a child and abused her. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, when women come forward with allegations of sexual abuse or abuse and people go, oh, that can't possibly happen, we're going down a really slippery slope, right? Women should say something. Then it's like, well, don't believe women. So I, I don't understand why people would even question whether she was or wasn't because – now they're thinking, oh, well, she's accusing him because he wanted to out her. But what if he really did sexually abuse her? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to believe women regardless. Yeah. I mean, in my view, the I mean, yeah, the, the, the document, I think the, the state does raise questions about it. But I also don't about the accusation. I also don't. I think it makes a point of not making a determination on that, or at least not making a determination nearly as strong as the one it makes about her identity, and it's, I think it, may, it tr- at least tries to make a point of leaving ambiguity. Maybe even leaving ambiguity is may not be the best or most respectful path there. But the letter itself did, from the lawyer did make reference to specifically interference with employment opportunities, and that she would dredge these things up if that were the case. And I guess without litigating the validity of those of the accusations around abuse, because I certainly don't have the information around that, and the documentary doesn't present enough information to draw any firm conclusions, it does say, Miss St. Marie has advised that you have, without provocation, disparaged and perhaps defamed Buffy and maliciously interfered with her employment opportunities. We've been instructed to advise you that should you persist in this course of conduct, we are to initiate whatever legal remedies we deem appropriate. Although it alludes to the alleged abuse, it very much connects it, it very much leads off with We've heard that you're interfering in her employment opportunities. If that persists, we will bring this out, mm-hmm. which is not to say one way or the other that that did, did not happen, but that the fact the precipitating element seems to have been discussion, it seems to have been discussion of her identity. And it's, it's really awkward as these things tend to be that these things have become entangled in this document, in that, in this document, in this documentary, in that interview, in that discussion. I mean, they made the Fifth Estate piece so black and white that there is just some basic questions. If they would have just asked, maybe I would have felt more settled on their reporting. It's very one-sided. The story is incredibly one-sided. If they would have talked to the Piapot family, if, you know, if they would have talked to a Cree knowledge keeper, if they would have talked to a historian, I may feel, I may be sitting here feeling very different about the entire piece. Now that this is out there and there's a lot of division about how in terms of how it's been received i guess what do you what do you think or hope will happen next 
how does this discussion move forward from here? Well, I hope that we as a community can move forward respectfully and gracefully and with kindness and understanding how each of us feel, even if it is on completely different sides of the fence. You know, the Indigenous music community has worked so incredibly hard over the last, you know, 15 years building this community and raising one another up. And they, Mm. you know, a lot of them acknowledge that they stand on the shoulders of giants, including Buffy St. Marie, who opened doors for them. And I hope that this does not do anything to ruin friendships, ruin collaborations, and ruin the community that that they've built so hard to to make and to break into non-Indigenous audiences and venues. And that, you know, while, yes, we are hurting and there's a lot of pain, I hope that we can move past this and continue the good work that Indigenous musicians are doing today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Another heads up that in Kim's duly noted, there will be a discussion of suicide. So, Kim, on this show, we like to duly note things. I'd like to note duly something that was kind of foreseeable, that that the Shortcuts episode I recorded two weeks ago with Pacent Matar on the subject of Gaza and Israel would become the subject of an action alert from Honest Reporting Canada. Honest Reporting Canada, as we described in that episode, is the sort of the premier advocacy organization that systematizes pressure to, as they say at the top of their site, ensure fair and accurate Canadian media coverage of Israel. 
They monitor for items whose framing or word choices they take issue with, write a blog post about it, and blast alerts to a subscriber list of what they say is almost 60,000 people. And those blog posts often contain forms that auto-generate emails to the news organization or other institutions they're attempting to hold accountable. As its executive director, Mike Fagelman, told the Jewish News Syndicate a few months ago, we want to create a digital army for Israel. And so this past Sunday, they published a post called Candleland Podcast Guest Claims 75 Years of Israeli Occupation, Denying Israel's Right to Exist, by Robert Walker, a former communications director for the Israeli Embassy and digital brand manager for retirementhomes.com, who is now on his reporting's assistant director. While the post discussed both Passant and myself, it featured a photo of just her, and this was similar to the previous occasion they took issue with the shortcuts I hosted, in which that graphic also highlighted just the woman journalist of color who joined me on it. And actually, if you were to go by the images on their site, you'd conclude there's actually a healthy level of diversity in Canadian media. In the past three months, from August 1st through October 31st, they've published 19 posts whose lead graphic prominently features a, an image of a journalist whose reporting or commentary they took issue with. All but three of those are women, and two-thirds are women of color. But I'm bringing this up because of the insight it's offered in terms of how their form letters actually work in practice on the on the receiving end. So the post went up Sunday, and all of Monday I was wor- wondering who at Candlelight was actually getting bombarded. No one seemed to know, and so I tried to test one myself, replacing their default message with a request that, you know, whoever receives the email, please forward it back to me so I can just find out where it ended up. Uh, but then at Monday night at 8.36 p.m., they all came through in a single dump. 381 identical emails across the span of just a couple minutes to our general editor at Candleland.com inbox. But because we use a Gmail-based platform for our company email accounts, this made much less of a dent than I would have guessed. Uh, Because all the messages had an identical subject line, stop giving a platform to those who deny Israel's right to exist, Gmail just sorted them into a handful of threads of about 100 messages each, meaning it occupied just four lines of the inbox. Uh, And then another 74 came through on Wednesday afternoon, including all those where the suggested body text was modified, including... The, the test one that I sent. So it was a lot of messages, but thanks to Gmail, not really a disruptive onslaught. Uh, the other thing I learned is that all the emails were identified as coming from the address civicinput at newmode.org. I looked up Newmode and discovered it's an advocacy platform that makes a point of marketing itself as a backer of progressive causes. For example, its homepage spotlights a campaign opposed to the coastal gas link pipeline through Wet'suwet'en territory, and they highlight clients like the United Steelworkers, Greenpeace, and Sunrise Movement. They even have a set of principles that says, we won't work with aggressive forces. New mode subscribers are not permitted to promote things like the limitation of civil, democratic, or minority rights, policies that have been demonstrated to significantly reduce public health, or violence, warfare, or colonization. So I reached out to New mode to ask, like, you know, what does violence, warfare, colonization mean in the context of their policy and how they believed Honest Reporting Canada's mission and campaigns align with their principles? They go back to me to say that, you know, as a values-based company, we believe technology is not neutral but rather should be leveraged for the general good of people, communities, and the environment. We take this seriously through strong values-based content requirements in our terms of service and responsive moderation. They use a detailed rubric to assess potential violations, the penalties for which can range from a notice to the subscriber, content removal, or subscription termination. But they do not comment on the terms of service reviews that may be ongoing for a particular subscriber. Duly noted. Kim, what would you like to note, Duly, today? Well, mine is really sad, actually. And, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the story of an 11-year-old girl in Sioux Lookout who took her own life. And mm. the Kingfisher Lake First Nation did do a news release on October 29th and named her. Her name is Elena Cecilia Nancy Beardy. 
Tanya Talaga, who's a columnist, an Anishinaabe columnist for the Globe and Mail, actually included her in in one of her columns, maybe like the same day or the day after. She was talking about the Buffy St. Marie story, but said, well, that is going on. The story of the suicide of this young girl has been missed. And in a quick Google search, yes, Tanya is the only one who had covered her death. Why are we not talking about that? That 11-year-old little kids in this country are so, you know, I don't know what they're going through, that they would think that death is the only way out for them. Why is this country not talking about that? The Anishinaabe Aski Nation Grand Chief Alvin Fidler also retweeted the news release with her death. And I just want to read to you, you know, what they said. So, of course, they said, you know, she leaves behind her parents and her maternal grandparents. And they, they say all this. But this is the little blurb that they wrote about Elena. Elena was always a happy young lady, always had a ready smile for everyone, She was always willing to lend a helping hand, especially to her friends that she left behind. We called her Princess Elena, or Baby, because that was who she was with us. She loved everyone around her. Princess Elena will be forever missed and will be forever in our hearts. You know, with all this news that's going on in the world and and the things that are happening right here in this country, even last week, you know, the Supreme Court announced that Canada owes the, you know, First Nations $23 billion for child welfare. Even that story should have been at the top of the news cycles, but it wasn't. And even though the media covered it, it was lost among all the Buffy noise, especially when it came to my my feed, that Indigenous people were just talking about Buffy. So these two incredibly important stories have gotten lost under the story of the validity of Buffy St. Marie's identity. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's one of those, yeah, things that's a reminder that sometimes it's not, yeah, it's not that the media is a zero-sum game, but sometimes it kind of, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, like, how do you go back, like, how do you go back and get the media interested and the public interested in talking about the $23 billion again? Because they'll say, well, we did that story last week. What's new this week? Well, I'm sure there's lots of new things this week and lots yeah. of angles that can be covered because we're still talking about the Buffy story, right? Five days later. Duly noted. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is facing new questions over the now cancelled Greenbelt plan. Premier Doug Ford reiterated today that his office had nothing to do with the plan to remove land from the Greenbelt. All right, on a serious note, on this Halloween, Premier Doug Ford is being haunted by the specter of a scandal that simply won't go away. The RCMP has launched a criminal probe into allegations associated to opening parts of the Greenbelt. I had nothing to do with the changes in the Greenbelt, number one. Number two, the Auditor General cleared us, cleared my office and the integrity commissioner cleared me in my office. So, Kim, we want to offer an update on the Greenbelt saga slash scandal in Ontario because it's something that we haven't talked about on the show in a little while. I believe it was last discussed by Jesse in early September, and there have been quite a few developments since. Just as a recap for people outside of Ontario, the Greenbelt is a protected span that largely rings around the Greater Toronto Area, which was established by Ontario's previous Liberal government in the mid-2000s to limit urban sprawl and to ensure that Southern Ontario would continue to have 
agricultural land and land that could mitigate flooding in the face of extreme weather and and just achieve a variety of short, medium and long-term environmental goals as opposed to, you know, municipalities expanding indefinitely. But a year, roughly a little over a year ago, the current government of Premier Doug Ford suddenly removed several big chunks of the Green Belt that could then be opened up to development. And as reporters, particularly from the Narwhal and the Star, quickly realized a lot of those chunks and parcels that were removed from the Green Belt were owned by developers or development companies that stood to make a lot of money, in particular companies that had various connections to Doug Ford and his government, in some cases even, you know, personal friends. So earlier, this, so just a couple months ago, a couple of reports came out from government officials. One was from the Auditor General, the other is from the Integrity Commissioner, that looked behind the scenes and basically showed it was as much of a mess as expected. So since we last talked about on the show, Ford did reverse the changes. He basically gave in to public pressure on September 21st, saying, look, no, we'll keep this all of the stuff in the Green Belt. They introduced new legislation to prevent any other government from fucking up as much as they did. In the, in the press release, it, it was like so so ballsy. It was like, if passed, this legislation, this new legislation, would also enhance protections for the Green Belt and the Oak Ridge's moraine areas by ensuring any future boundary changes can only be made through a public and transparent process that would require the approval of the legislature. In other words, they're going to make sure that no other government tries to pull the shit they pulled. They also reversed these separate missable boundary expansions. And all of that followed on a whole whack of resignations. So that announcement, the reversal came the same day as the premier's director of housing policy, Jay Chusdell, resigned, which was the day after Khalid Rashid, the minister of public and business service delivery, resigned, which was a couple weeks after Steve Clark, the municipal affairs and housing minister, resigned, which itself was about a couple weeks after his chief of staff, Ryan Amato, the person who had sort of overseen it all, himself resigned. There have been other resignations, including another minister who was actually a relatively competent one, although his uh, resignation is uh, at least theoretically unconnected. We probably took advantage of the timing. Oh, and of course, the biggest part is, you know, the RCMP is now looking into this. They're engaged in a criminal investigation and could be interviewing people in the government as soon as this week. All of which is to say, how's Wob doing? Well, I think he's doing good so far. I've had COVID, so I've been under the weather, not really watching the mm-hmm. news. I've only had my enough energy for the whole Buffy story. But every time I see him, man, that dude is has the biggest shit-eating grin on his face that I have ever seen. Now you have to know, I I have worked with Wob. I've been his producer on radio shows. Mm. He sang a hand drum song at my wedding. It's not to say that we're oh. we're good, close, personal friends. But we are, you know, when we see one another in the street, we will stop and mm. talk and chat. I think he's, I, you know, I hold out hope that he is going to be one of the best premiers for this province. And hopefully he'll search the landfill as soon as he possibly can. You know, now it's the winter months, so I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, I mean, it must be interesting. I mean, I, w- I wasn't planning on talking all about Wob Canoe, but I do think I was fascinating. You know, it's... I don't know how it feels from Winnipeg, but certainly from from southern Ontario, Manitoba just doesn't feel close at all. Like, I mean, like the distance from Toronto to Winnipeg is something like the distance from Toronto to Florida. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Looking across the provincial border, it's one of the things I'm interested in is the Greenbelt scandal. Like, is that something that registers in the rest of the country? Is it something that should register in the rest of the country? Have like. Is this something the rest of the country would 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 care about at all? Do you care about this? Um, I would say that no, I probably don't really care about it. Should I? Probably, because it could happen. It could happen in other provinces, mm-hmm. 
And we should be protecting the environment. We should be making sure that, you know, encroachment isn't happening in in places of where that land is, you know, maybe it's like a watershed or it's helping protect other areas from flooding or, 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 right? And we mm-hmm. we also know that, you know, when it's, you know, there's green and there's trees and stuff that helps mm-hmm. clean the atmosphere and put oxygen back into the atmosphere and supports supports animals that in turn also provide the ecosystem with what it needs. When you say that, you know, or Doug Ford said, well, he was cleared by this person or this office and this office. I'm like, isn't that like the RCMP investigating themselves? Uh, I mean, he's, I mean, in some ways, I mean, in this case, he's like, he likes to, I mean, he likes to avoid questions, Shelley, but he likes to mischaracterize the findings of certain investigations that were not specifically investigations of him around the auditor, from the auditor general and the integrity commissioner and sort of mischaracterize the degree to which they did or didn't exonerate him. Yeah, they, they didn't really clear him. They didn't like indict him either, not figuratively or literally. Right. But he's this is not this is not the first time he's pointed to something to a report where he was not specifically blamed and said, "Oh, I'm I've been cleared." One interesting development this week has been the release of a whole crap ton of documents, thousands and thousands of pages of documents released via Freedom Information Request. Uh, this is from uh, two environmental organizations, Environmental Defense and Eco Justice. They filed very expansive sort of fishing expedition type FOIs with the government for anything, basically any records related, any uh, records in relation to uh, the minister's consideration of proposed official plans for certain regions and anything related to uh, modification of the Greenbelt plans. They got all this. They released it to the media earlier this week. And in many cases, it confirms the it confirms what we've seen before, adds in more color, adds in more detail, contradicts some things in terms of shows that the premier's office was more involved than he had previously than any of the reports had previously said, and certainly that he had previously said. And I like how the Narwhal put it in their story, talking about like what this reveals about particularly about the details about the extent to which the staffers of the government basically try to keep from, so even though there are thousands of records here, they went to lengths to try to keep from creating records that could potentially be discoverable via Freedom of Information request. And as the Narwhal wrote, one set of notes typed by an NNA ministry staffer on October 28th, 2022, details the measures the government took to avoid creating records. Digital documents would be shared via screen shares, and which meaning they could basically peek in on each other's computers, and communications materials would be prepared through live editing sessions, both of which would leave a minimal paper trail. That's to say, like, you know, if you're doing live editing sessions, you wouldn't necessarily have multiple drafts of things that would have to be shared. They also worked to ensure documents they did create couldn't be leaked, such as working with hard copies, each printed with a unique watermark so its source could be traced, which is very suspicious for things that aren't involved in, you know, national security. It certainly does not inspire the most confidence a lot of this feels like the sort of political scandal you'd find in like, I don't know, in some ways this feels like a really run-of-the-mill political scandal. It's like the sort of thing you'd expect to see in like New York State. But maybe I'm also just jaded and cynical. What it, like, from, a, I was thinking, like, for, I'm not going to actually speak for all of Manitoba, but I am curious, like from a Manitoba perspective, how does this compare to the sort of things that typically pass as political scandals in the provincial level there? Yeah, I don't know if we've had political scandals like that. I mean, because Wab Canoe is our premier, the, you know, the political scandals are you know, his past, right? His so-called criminal mm-hmm. past, how the election went, all the attack ads, you know, that Heather Stephenson is now apologizing for 
how hmm. the election went uh, here. Oh, I missed that. What yeah. Did, what did she? What did she say? I was aware what, that yeah. The, yeah, like she she was hmm. she was sorry that you know that it took that direction that you know she misspoke when. I think I think she said something like she misspoke when she said that they wouldn't search the landfill for indigenous women, that she kind of was walking all that back after, you know, after she said she was stepping down as leader. And now, well, she's still the leader until they have an election to choose a new leader for the conservatives. But those are the kind of political scandals I'm aware of here in this province right now. Well, she said she misspoke. I mean, they very explicitly ran on that, campaigned on that as like a core yeah. plank. I mean, the type of plank you, you seize on when you get desperate, but yeah. out, at and least then, outside of Quebec, I can't think of the last time a, 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 an incumbent government in Canada, an incumbent provincial government in Canada campaign was so emphatically, I don't know if it's called dog whistling, was basically so emphatically racist <laughs> or making such emphatically racist appeals in its messaging. Yeah, it was it was horrible and gross to watch and... You know, as a member of the indigenous community, having to sit through that for for weeks was just like, okay, you've lost the vote, lady. Like, you are going to lose the election. The indigenous community has realized that we have enough people to get out the vote to change the election. And clearly that happened. And we elected our first First Nations premier in Manitoba. So let this be a warning to the rest of Canada. (laughs) Play nice in the sandbox. That's Surf Cuts this week. Thanks for joining me. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. We are on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at CanadaLand. You can email me at jonathan at canadaland.com and read everything you send. And you can also look up my last name, Goldsby, on Blue Sky. Where can people find you, Kim? They can find me on X at Kimmage Wheeler. And I'm accepting new friends on Facebook these days. Oh, wow. This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Ned Ejofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on CanadaLand merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.